0: You may have heard of the doomsday clock. This is a rubric that was put together by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists at the dawn of the nuclear age. It is used to demonstrate how close humanity is to nuclear annihilation. Midnight symbolizes doomsday, and the closer the clock moves to midnight, the closer we are to nuclear war. Well, on January 25th, the scientists behind the nuclear clock moved it a tick closer, to two minutes before midnight. This is the closest the clock has been to the doomsday scenario since 1953. They cited the impetuousness of Trump and Kim Jong-un as their rationale, but adding to the growing concern over the possible use of nuclear weapons is also a new nuclear weapons policy that's being rolled out by the Trump administration. The world caught a glimpse of what that policy might be when a draft of a document called the Nuclear Posture Review was leaked to the press. The Nuclear Posture Review is a document that tends to be released in the early stages of an administration to set its overall nuclear weapons policy. And here you will likely not be surprised to learn that Trump's nuclear policy review is likely to deviate from his predecessors in very important ways. On the line with me to discuss the administration's emerging approach to nuclear weapons, nuclear deterrence, and other key issues in nuclear policy is Tom Countryman. He was a career diplomat who served for decades in various postings at the State Department and around the world. He most recently served as the Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation, and he served in that post until the very early days of the Trump administration. He is now the chair of the board of the Arms Control Association. He does a very good job of explaining what is the same and what is so different about this particular nuclear posture review. And in so doing, I think he offers some important insights into how some of the underlying logic of nuclear policy planners might rest on some faulty assumptions. Uh, this is a very useful conversation. As I mentioned at the very end, he does a very good job of kind of translating what is essentially a bureaucratic document into uh, a way that is accessible to you and to I. And I think does a good job of highlighting its significance. So enjoy this conversation. And, you know, hopefully by the time you listen to it, we'll not have all perished in a nuclear war. As always, please feel free to get in touch with me using the contact button on global dispatches, Podcast.com. I love hearing from you. Please let me know if there are suggestions of people you want me to interview, topics you want me to cover, and please do leave a review on iTunes. As I've mentioned in recent episodes, it's a great way of helping to spread the word about this podcast to other people who are interested in foreign policy and world affairs. And you can go to the description page of this podcast in iTunes and I've left instructions on uh, how you can leave a review. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with Tom Countryman. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health. Tune into global health matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Eslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We're speaking of the day that the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists moved the uh, doomsday clock closer to midnight than it has been at any time since 1953, suggesting that we are closer to a nuclear confrontation at any time uh, since the early 1950s. Do you agree with that sentiment?
1: I do. Uh, in the last year, I think the risk of nuclear war on this planet has changed from negligible to still remote but conceivable and the fact that we have at least two national leaders talking about the possibility of using nuclear weapons is in itself a very solid reason uh, for advancing this doomsday clock it grabs the attention of the public it's intended to and it should, because uh, apart from global warming, which is a an immediate threat, but not an immediate threat of ending human existence as we know it, uh, the only thing that can destroy uh, the human race and the civilization that we built is the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, so it's appropriate for that clock to move forward. Okay. It is not only a question, of course, of the impetuosity of both the United States president and the leader of North Korea. It's also the fact that uh, more nations are uh, building or at least modernizing their nuclear arsenals and expanding nuclear arsenals, and there's more serious discussion about what some mistakenly believe could be the limited use of nuclear weapons in a military conflict. So there's very good reason to be concerned, and I hope that the move by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists gets the attention of the public.
0: So so it sort of boils down to the rhetoric that Trump has invoked and that's been matched by Kim Jong-un that um, you think uh, is... is... is is sufficient to bring us sort of closer to a nuclear confrontation than any time we have been since the the Cold War. Even closer, I should say, than we were during the Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: Well, difficult for me to compare. I was in uh, kindergarten during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, But... The uh, That crisis was extremely serious and detailed histories of that crisis that are now available from historians show how close we came to miscalculation to both the United States and the Soviets misjudging not only what the other side was doing, but how the other side would react. And there were voices in Washington and Moscow and in Havana that were advocating for use of nuclear weapons at that time. Uh, We learned a lot from that crisis, but one of the things that I think the current administration has not learned is that you cannot, with perfect knowledge, predict the response of the other side to your actions. So if, for example, the uh, Trump administration Pursues what it calls a bloody nose strike against North Korea. It has no way of knowing whether that can escalate to use of nuclear weapons. Uh, so yes, I think uh, people who have who are determined to unlearn the lessons of the past uh, have created a situation that justifies uh, placing this doomsday clock at just two minutes before midnight.
0: Um, So this warning from uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists comes just uh, days before the expected release of the nuclear uh, posture review, the first nuclear posture review by the the Trump administration. Can you just take a a step back and explain what is a a nuclear posture review? Why does the U.S. government do it? What does it hope to achieve?
1: The nuclear posture review has in recent years been completed at the outset of each new president's tenure. It seeks to define the threats to the United States that require maintenance of the nuclear arsenal. It seeks to define what level of weapons are needed. And crucially, it seeks to define the circumstances under which the President may consider the use of nuclear weapons against an adversary.
0: And and it's it's an exercise that the national security bureaucracy undergoes every four to eight years.
1: Yeah, it's been done in 2010 under President Obama, 2002 under President George W. Bush. Uh, I'm not sure of the last one before that.
0: (laughs) So, uh, portions of, uh, a draft of this have, have already been, uh, released and and leaked. And so the sort of security community, the international security community has, you know, had a chance to weigh in on what distinguishes this, uh, nuclear posture view from the others, which is what I, I wanted to ask you. What, what makes this one different?
1: Well, of course, there are many similarities. Nuclear weapons policy does not change uh, overnight, even in Washington, even with a new president, but there are significant new additions and omissions in the draft document. I hope some of these are corrected before it is finalized by the White House. Uh, But if not, I'm very concerned about the direction it's taking first. It breaks with a longstanding bipartisan effort to reduce the role and the number of nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal.
0: So how, how does yeah. it do that? Can you explain that?
1: Well, it uh, two ways. First, it talks uh, about constructing new types of nuclear weapons. The United States has streamlined its arsenal from literally dozens of different nuclear weapons, one for every festive occasion, uh, down to a handful. But this proposes uh, building new weapons with new, uh, potentially new delivery systems. More importantly, it defines a wider range of circumstances under which the president could consider the use of nuclear weapons. President Obama, uh, in his nuclear posture review eight years ago, uh, defined the role of nuclear weapons as primarily being to deter the use of nuclear weapons by other countries. Uh, And uh, in the closing days of the Obama administration a year ago, Vice President Biden went further uh, and said, given the U.S. overwhelming capability an advantage in both conventional conventional capability, it's difficult to imagine any circumstance short of nuclear war in which the US president would use nuclear weapons. Now, the Trump administration is going in the opposite direction. It's breaking with the steady narrowing of those circumstances under which nuclear use could be contemplated and saying explicitly that the, uh, the US may use nuclear weapons uh, to counter new kinds of asymmetric threats, such as a massive and crippling cyber attack against the United States. Uh, the mere fact that this administration is thinking about how to use nuclear weapons in non-nuclear scenarios Brings us closer to their potential use. The nuclear posture review, the draft we've seen, makes the opposite argument that these modifications will actually reduce the risk. Um, but I simply don't see that. If, so, like, no they,
0: adversary would ever dream of mass, like, uh, launching a massive cyber attack against the United States because they would be hit with nuclear weapons. Is is the the thinking that's embedded in that document? <laughs>
1: Yeah, the thinking being that it's a good idea to explicitly let the rest of the world know that we are prepared to respond to a crippling cyber attack with nuclear weapons. Not automatically, uh, not necessarily on a hair trigger, uh, but the, uh, the point of this draft is to say if our adversaries understand the risk, they are less likely to try that little adventure. So so basically, Uh,
0: that expands dramatically the scope under which the United States might consider to use nuclear weapons, as you said.
1: Yeah, it's not necessarily a dramatic expansion, but it is a reversal of the direction that 11 successive presidents followed.
0: So... In terms of the kinds of weapons that the uh, posture believes it's an American national security interest to pursue or develop, what what does it it, it say there? I mean, I know in, during the Obama administration they were, were undergoing a process of like modernizing their nuclear weapons. Um, what does this document say about sort of the kind of weapons that it would envision the United States ought to pursue?
1: Well, to go into a little bit of detail here. When we talk about modernization, there is modernization of existing weapons. And as I said, the Obama administration continued the trend of previous administrations to reduce the variety of nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal. Some of those required modernization in the sense that President Obama was determined that as long as the U.S. possesses nuclear weapons, we will ensure that those weapons are reliable, uh, secure, and effective. Uh, And that means that some of them required updating. There is, apart from modernization of warheads, there is modernization of the delivery systems. As you know, the U.S relies on a triad of nuclear delivery systems, that is land-based intercontinental missiles, sea-based submarine-launched missiles, and long-range bombers carrying gravity bombs or is, is now proposed uh, air-launched cruise missiles. The Obama administration agreed with the Congress in 2010 to pursue an ambitious modernization program so that those delivery systems, some of which are over 40 or 50 years old, would be modernized. So those are the two elements of modernization, of delivery systems and of the warheads themselves. Mm-hmm. What the new Nuclear Posture Review discusses is uh, moving ahead with a new, what they call low-yield um nuclear warhead. When they say low yield, they're talking about six and a half kilotons, about one third the size of the weapon that destroyed Hiroshima. Uh, And they are proposing to put this uh, on submarines and to have it as an additional deterrent. This would be the first new warhead introduced into the U.S. arsenal in some years
0: what what's Uh, the logic if, if you can explain of of wanting to develop a low yield nuclear weapon
1: the logic is that uh those who have authored the art the draft nuclear posture review see a gap that is they see that some russian strategists have talked about the possibility of using low yield, or as the Russians say, non-strategic nuclear weapons in the course of a conventional conflict, and the thought being, according to some, that if Russia were losing a battle, it could force a pause and more favorable terms with selective use of smaller, low yield nuclear weapons. The United States, uh, again, this is the argument of the draft NPR, does not have the capability to respond in kind. Uh, We don't have the capability for immediate delivery of low-yield nuclear warheads. We do have the capability to deliver uh, low-yield warheads by air, by airplane. Uh, But that may not be the same as what the Russians have. So that is the rationale. And the rationale goes further to say if Russia knows that we have the capability to respond in kind, it makes it less likely that they will attempt that as a tactic. Uh, I don't buy that argument. Uh, I think that the Russians understand that there is really no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon or of a limited nuclear war. That any use of a nuclear weapon inevitably runs the risk of escalation. For me, uh, I simply don't agree with the argument uh, that for the U.S. to have more options for Uh, The the illusory limited nuclear war makes that limited nuclear war less likely. We're falling back to the trap of imitating Moscow, no matter what stupid and dangerous thing Moscow is doing.
0: That's so funny. I I mean, that was my initial uh, thought when you described uh, the logic embedded in in the report that there is is—it's just such like a harking to like, you know, 1970s Cold War logic. Even before yes. that, yeah, even 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 earlier than that. It's, well, it's... even
1: earlier. I think by the by the 1970s, the U.S. military had realized—not everyone, but the primary thinkers in the U.S. military had realized that the pursuit of a wide range of non-strategic nuclear weapons deliverable by a variety of means was a dead end. It simply led to a situation where their use was more likely. And we have been walking back from uh, that position, uh, a position that still, you know, binds the thinking of countries like Pakistan on their nuclear weapons. We've been walking it back for 40 years until now.
0: And presumably, like one of the the sort of um, problems, uh, one of many with, with developing low yield nuclear weapons is that, you know, you're blurring the lines between, um, you know, what constitutes a, a nuclear war and, and the, the process for escalation uh, seems like very, it's sort of an easier ladder to climb. If you start with a lower yield, then go a little higher and then a little higher, then finally you're at, you know, the Hiroshima or higher level bombs.
1: Right. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate uh, the change in thinking in this administration. The NPR still states quite clearly, I think, that the primary purpose of the nuclear arsenal is to deter strategic nuclear attacks that threaten the very existence of our nation. And I agree with that. Uh, the, uh, The problem is that there has long been a strand of thinking in the U.S. military, uh, that nuclear weapons have a combat utility, that they are, in some sense, similar to other weapons that are deployed on the battlefield. What political leaders in the U.S., and thankfully elsewhere, have realized is that that combat utility, it's not the same thing. Once you have uh, used nuclear weapons, you have crossed the line. And the escalation ladder is one that would rapidly slip out of the control of any political or military leader.
0: And, you know, every U.S. leader, you know, since, you know, Truman after, you know, uh, Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki have had the forbearance not to use nuclear weapons and to, you know, avoid that that situation. And I suppose again, maybe getting back to this this doomsday clock, is the is we're not as certain uh, that Trump sort of has that kind of forbearance.
1: Yeah, if you add the character and the impetuous nature of our current president, uh, this nuclear posture review becomes even more frightening. But I think on its own terms, even apart from the nature of the U.S. president, it, as I said, reverses a long-term trend uh, and is risky in and of itself. Let me mention one other thing that that Mm -hmm. bothers me very much about this, in part because of my previous job, which included uh, responsibility for non-proliferation, that is, for uh, discouraging by all diplomatic and political means, uh, other countries from building nuclear weapons. I'm very bothered that this nuclear posture review in draft walks back from the traditional American leadership in this field, Uh, and it does that in two ways. Number one, it makes no reference to the fact that 50 years ago, the United States made a binding legal commitment That it would work uh, to, uh, as the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty says, uh, to pursue effective measures to reduce the role and number of nuclear weapons leading to their verifiable elimination. That is still a binding obligation on the United States. And successive presidents have reaffirmed that. Uh, It matters to the other countries of the world. That commitment is a cornerstone of the shared agreement among 180-plus nations to discourage everyone else from building nuclear weapons. For the nuclear posture review, not even to mention it, I think, is uh, uh, a failure of U.S. leadership that's similar to the U.S. retreat from leadership in other fields that we've seen this year,
0: and and you know the, um, the it's commonly referred to as like the the three-legged stool of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, you know disarmament being one leg of, of the stool that's holding up the whole apparatus. Yes, um, I wanted to ask you who. Um who wrote the nuclear policy review? Can you explain like the bureaucratic politics of of a document like this? I mean, you mentioned earlier there's not a whole I mean th- there are some alarming differences that you just described, but in general there's a lot of consistency uh between this document and and the Obama administration. So what does the process of of writing it it look like and what are some of the competing interests that go into it?
1: Well, I can only help you a little bit on that. I was not involved in the process eight years ago under the Obama administration. The primary authors are uh, career civil servants and military of the State Department, uh, Energy Department, the National Security Council, and particularly the Defense Department, which has the lead uh, in drafting this document. Uh, As you might imagine, I'm sure it has gone through dozens of drafts and hundreds of discussions uh, at various levels. In the end, I think it is useful to think about this as a document that belongs to the Secretary of Defense, James Mattis. He made clear that he has a direct interest in these issues. Uh, He is more conversant. In these issues, uh, than an awful lot of officials uh, in the past have been. Uh, I don't know if our president has read the document. I don't know if he will or can read the document before he signs off on it. Um, one of the and you ask about what are the competing interests in this. One thing to keep in mind is that this is a. Uh, review a policy that is written by uh, the nuclear establishment, if you will, those people in, especially in defense and state, uh, who are most focused on nuclear issues. How you integrate this into a broader defense strategy, a broader national security strategy, is an issue for the Congress. And the Congress, as well as the Secretary of Defense, will have to weigh the very expensive proposals for new weapons and delivery systems contained in this nuclear posture review against all the other uh, military and national security needs that we have. You may have heard my colleague, John Wolfstall, at the press conference we did a couple of days ago, note that if we are so concerned about the risk of a massive cyber attack on the United States, we should be spending money not on new nuclear weapons, but greatly increasing the budget for cybersecurity in the United States. Those are the kind of trade-offs that are not part of this review, but they are very much part of the policy and budget dialogue that Congress must now take up.
0: Uh, well, Tom, thank you so much for your time. This was extremely clarifying.
1: <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah, I, I emphasize to everybody it is a complex, even esoteric topic, but it is not beyond the capability of the media and the public and especially the Congress To understand and debate it so i thank you for making a contribution
0: to that yeah and and, and it requires people like you to help translate like the the bureaucratic speak of uh these kinds of documents and and, and also explain like the logic embedded in them in ways that are understandable like you did with the low yield uh nuclear weapon logic that uh, i thought i found very helpful and clarifying so thank you
1: thank you look forward Uh, to hearing the podcast
0: all right All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Tom. That was helpful. You know, one of the recurring themes that I've come back to on the podcast over the past year since Trump's election has been the ways in which not only that he's deviated from, say, his predecessor or predecessors, but how... Some aspects of his administration are just total deviations uh, from just the traditional way of, of doing things and from kind of the traditional and conventional ways in which every other American president has you know, done something since the you know, say end of World War II. And this is, I think, one more example of that, or there are some examples of that in this nuclear posture review. Uh, please, again, do leave a review on iTunes. I so appreciate it. And thank you all who have already left reviews on iTunes. Of as, as I have said before, it's a, it's a selfless act. You're helping other people discover the podcast. So I, I so appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Bye.
1: The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.